welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everybody, I want to take a quick minute to tell you something that I'm really excited about. I've recently teamed up with Hitched Inc., one of the biggest and fastest growing tech startups in oil and gas. You've probably seen them all over LinkedIn. From generators to light towers, pumps to forklifts, use Hitch to pair your company with reliable rental suppliers and eliminate the hassle of logistics through the use of an in-app platform. Hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to schedule a demo. Hey Justin, we got a really cool guest today, don't we? We do. And I've been really looking forward to this and it's an honor to be on. We've got Amazon Web Services. This is the first part to a two-part series. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and get into it. All right. Well, welcome to another episode. We're here in the virtual world with some fascinating gentlemen here. My name is Justin Gochi. I'm the host of Oil & Gas Onshore. And if we don't mind going through the virtual room here and doing some introductions, Mark, I'll let you go first. Yeah, Mark LaCour. Everybody knows me. And if you don't know me, I, we tend to have the top nine oil and gas podcasts in the world. I host Oil and Gas This Week and Oil and Gas Tech. Justin's a fantastic addition to the team. So Justin and I thought we would team up because we're sitting here with Amazon Energy Services with Arno. How are you doing today, Arno? Hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Justin. Yeah, really pleased to, to be back on your fantastic show. And I hope we'll really provide a podcast that the audience will enjoy something new something different and just a heads up we're not going to be talking about technology too much really going to be talking about uh, what's happening in our industry and and how we think we can actually change the course that we're on then we're also blessed we have vincat on with us how are you doing today vincat i'm doing very well thank you so before we get into what we want to talk about, I want to just real quick, let's talk about your background. So Arno, I happen to know your background, but Justin's audience probably doesn't. Just real quick, how did you get into the oil and gas industry? More luck than anything else. After 25 years working oil and gas, predominantly in the upstream, all over the world and living all over the world, it gets very tiring. So the opportunity really came to, to lead the vertical in Amazon Web Services, driving the vertical for for energy. And it's a fantastic opportunity. It's a fantastic ride so far. And I think we're just at the start of even doing more fantastic stuff with with Amazon Web Services. Oh, we absolutely are. And Venkat, how did you get into this crazy industry? Well, I'm a professor at Boston University, and my area of interest is at the intersection of business and digital technologies. And one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in right now is how do we look at asset-heavy industries as opposed to asset-light industries? Because we've seen a much of digital transformation in the asset-light industries, media, publishing, books, software, advertising. But I think the next frontier is really asset-heavy, information-rich industry, and obviously no better industry to study and understand than the oil and gas industry, which is so important for how the world is going to operate over the next 10 years. So this is an exciting industry, and I'm very much looking forward to the conversation here, as well as the research that we are doing with Arno and others at AWS. Yeah, Venkat, what a perfect time for you to come in this industry and help. 
I'm trying to laugh instead of cry because we're facing this double black swan event that has never happened as far as I know of in the history of our industry, where you have low crude price environment going on. At the same time, you have a decreasing demand for refined goods. And so we're squeezed from both ends and companies don't know what to do. And so hopefully we're going to sit here and talk about some things that maybe can help some people, some companies, you know, get through this and actually come out better and stronger. So, you know, I kind of rattled off the whole black swan thing. Does one of y'all want to jump in and kind of go a little bit deeper in what's going on with that? Hey, Mark, this is Justin, and I'll certainly let the other gentleman speak. I just wanted to supplement that by saying it, it is an interesting event. However, if you look back, the oil and gas industry leading up to this point has certainly been at a crisis with their balance sheets. And so I think there was a, a, certainly a bubble that, that was growing that was about to burst in all these events were basically the needle that popped it. And so I think you're right in the sense that timing couldn't be any better to really evaluate our business and make a positive shift and leverage a lot of technology and different things that other industries have adopted. And so, again, I just really wanted to touch on the timing part of it. And I think you're exactly right on that front. Darn good point. Yeah, I think when you look back on it, the oil and gas industry, of course, has been no stranger to either demand disruption or supply disruption. And I think as you correctly identified, Mark, I think what is unique that now all of a sudden we got these two black swan events happening at the the same time. So when we look back in history, how we've uh, traditionally looked at it, whether we look back at the oil price disruption in uh, 1973 or even more recent between 2014 and 2016, we've always used, I would say, the same methodology to respond to this crisis. And it has always been around, let's cut costs, let's cut staff. Let's get back to the bone and then we'll see where we end. And I think what we want to highlight today, and that's also the reason for teaming up with uh, Professor Venkat Raman, is, is to look a little bit deeper, a little bit more fundamentally, and exactly just as you said, what can we do differently without using the same old and trusted playbooks? Because this is fundamentally different. And I think if people do not realize how different this is, well, as you just said, Mark, just look around you. But there's so many data to just to show that this is worse, for instance, than the Great Depression. This is far worse than we saw in the financial crisis in 2008. And so this is a really double black swan event, as Venkat uh, uh, claimed it correctly. Yeah, I think what is important is to recognize that some people will say that we have seen this in the past. And the moment they frame it as exactly what they've seen in the past, they're going to rely on the old playbook. So the human beings tend to understand any kind of event with what has happened in the past. But black swan as a metaphor, and that's why we start in our paper with this particular metaphor, is that this is rare and we have to treat it as a discontinuity at a point in time rather than minor adjustment that we can go back to. Right. And as Arno said, we have to really get the executives to begin to look at this as a rare event. It's an unusual event, but it has huge consequences. Right. These are not minor events, as you started out with. So that is an important point to make in this discussion. You know, what's interesting is we're touching on something that I have a fascination around, and that's built in biases. You know, human beings, we're problem solvers. And so if we have a new situation that happens to us, we try to fit that situation, that problem into experiences or or into past problems. And so when you're facing something that you've never faced before, you tend to want to fall back on what worked 
other times. And it's just a built-in bias that human has. But what we're talking about now, nobody's been through. So the problems that we're going to have, the solutions are going to just have to be different. And it may mean that we make some mistakes until we figure out what the solutions are that fit this problem. And you probably know as well, Mark, as an industry, I think we have been very good in, in thinking about scenarios and scenario planning. I think if you were to ask any executive in the oil and gas industry, was this on your radar screen? The answer is probably no. So yes, we do scenario planning. We do that very successfully. But I think the double jeopardy, for lack of a better word, just to highlight that one more time, I think was on nobody's nobody's radar screen. So I think that is, that is I think, what is the unique part of it that really provided all these surprises. To add to that, you know, we know some things will occur. And we know what the impact will be. So we tried to articulate in our paper that some people have knowledge about the occurrence of an event. And other times we have knowledge about the impact of the event. And what Arno said, and I want, I want to highlight, is that this is an unknown unknown. Whereas other things would have been either unknown knowns or known unknowns where we may know what is the likelihood of this happening, but we may not know when it will happen and vice versa. But this is an unknown unknown. And that requires people to step back and evaluate the sacred cows that might have existed in the company and those no longer fit in as we go forward. And that's part of what you just said about the implicit bias that we all have as decision makers, but more importantly, how do we frame the problem, right? You're absolutely right that the executives are problem solvers, but this is making us even think a little bit more about how do we frame the problem before jumping into solving the problem. Yeah. And if the audiences are wondering what we keep talking about with the new playbook, literally, Vincat worked with Amazon Web Services and they've actually come up with a new energy playbook. This white paper will be available to the public at some point. So we're going to kind of go through this, but this is like just incredible work, even framing the problem. I think y'all did a very good job of looking at it and realizing that it's something new and different that our industry's never had to deal with before. And so the solutions will probably be different than what we've done before. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're spot on, Mark. And I think what we want to highlight is a methodology. Yeah, we don't think that the answer is to just to throw more ready-made solutions against this problem. I think it's around stepping back, realizing what's happening in your industry, in your business, thinking about the future in a very structured way, thinking about how you can restructure your organization and your business, and then also leveraging, I think, the external environment to really drive new new insights. And one of the insights that we arrived on is that we think that this is really a truly an accelerator of this digital transformation, this digital journey that we're on. And actually, maybe the best way to illustrate this is with a little, little analogy. I know that everybody enjoys driving their car, and particularly once the lockdown is over. And when you think about when you enter into a curve, yeah? You have to slow down when you enter into the curve, you navigate the curve, and then you accelerate coming out of the curve. And I think that's what we're seeing at the moment is this realization, slow down, analyze what's happening, navigate the curve, 
and then use the digital and the digital technologies that we have available to accelerate out of it and more importantly to accelerate out of it and become really successful and competitive in driving your business forward and i think that is the the insight that we want to highlight today hey arno this is justin how do you suppose like as an industry not only ours but when industries are having to force themselves to come out of that curve and accelerate how do companies evaluate culture and making sure that everyone shares in the same type of vision and culture because unless everyone shares or buys into it that seems to me like and even in my experience over the years that seems to be a challenge and so how do you suppose we we look at it can you touch on that yeah I think you're spot on. We have a host of technologies, a host of technologies available. We think that the biggest change will require a change in leadership. It will require a change in behavior and a different attitude to really embrace digital uh, transformation, to really propel our industry going forward. And I'll just give you a very simple example. Yeah, We know... In particular, when we look at some of the fantastic innovations we're doing in the water, it takes us 10, 15 years to really bring new innovations to bear. Well, we don't have that time at the moment. We don't have the time to write a 100-page basis for design just to evaluate whether, for instance, a software as a service will work. So I think that is the cultural change that we also need to embrace, that these technologies are different from the past. But more importantly, I think these technologies really can help us not in the next couple of years. We're actually talking about the ability to find solutions in the next couple of days and even and even weeks. But it does require us to really step back a little bit and analyze what's happening in our industry without just throwing more technology against it. If I could just add to what Arno said, what we have seen is a recognition from the organization that this is an inflection point, which means We cannot continue doing what we have done. But then the question is, how do we decide what should we keep doing? What should we stop doing? And given this inflection, what new things can we start? So what I've seen companies do systematically is part of the changing of the culture is to mobilize the key decision makers to engage in the conversation that says, what should we stop doing? What should we keep doing the same way as before? Because these are enduring principles and logic that define our company and the culture. And then what should we start doing that we didn't do before? So one thing that we're going to see coming out of the current crisis is a rethinking of remote work. You know, when does it make sense to actually come to an office and have face-to-face meeting? And when do we do things remotely? And I'm just highlighting that as one aspect of the changes in culture that we need to go through. Then extend that logic to many other areas. So I think it's about creating a culture in which we can have honest discussion about stop, continue, and start, because this is the inflection point. Yeah. And just to add on that, I think that's the real positive note. So when I look back over the last two or three months, listening to our customers and seeing our customers adopt business continuity tools, adopt completely new collaboration tools, effectively like we're doing today. Yeah, There's a lot of recognition that this company, this environment really allows industries, in particular our industry, to quickly innovate. So we're not on a track where this is going to take years and years and years. We're seeing people adopting these new technologies effectively overnight, but more importantly, adopt these technologies overnight without the glitch and continue to run their business as business as usual. And I think Venkat is spot on. I think one of the insights that we had is that I think it's going to be very hard for a lot of our 
companies and in industries to go back to the way that they have been working in the past. Now that they have seen the ability to collaborate and provide all the other services that we have in a different world. It's really interesting to see all this stuff happen so quickly. You know, our industry doesn't like to move fast. And in this situation, we literally don't have a choice. You know, the first response that a lot of companies did is, is unfortunately layoffs, but that's not a long-term strategy. It's not a long-term solution. It's a, it's a short-term, you know, way to look at things. The other thing that's going to be really interesting to see is since we don't like change as an industry for a reason, and we're being forced to change, is that going to fundamentally change the culture of our industry? Will oil and gas in 2030 be a different industry than what oil and gas was in 2020? Well, maybe I don't agree with you that our industry doesn't want to change. I think our industry has a fantastic track record around innovation. Again, looks what happens in deep water. Look what happens in, in non-conventionals. It is the ability to innovate and to change and to really look at new solutions. I think what is different is the speed at which the urgency is there and the ability to embrace a different culture. So I think that the change is the constant. I think it is how and how fast we can adopt that change, Mark. Good point there. I do real quick want to go back to Vincat. You know, you help author this paper, and I just kind of want to talk through, can we talk through the logic, the drivers, and the reason there's a sequence in the way y'all outlined this? Yes. I think it goes back to a conversation thread that we had earlier, which is how do we create a more compelling logic of looking at this as not something that is same as what has happened in the past. So what we tried to do was to start with the first stage as your reflection at this inflection point. An inflection point, as I articulated earlier, is deciding what should we start doing, what should we stop doing, and what should we continue doing. And the inflection points are easy to see looking back. But this particular case, as we discussed earlier, we know that 2020 is an inflection point. So we want people to start looking at what needs to change today, starting with the energy portfolio, the organization logic, how they go to market, the kind of talent that they need to have, and all the other things that make the company successful. So the first step, it's really thinking through this inflection point. The second is to reimagine what the energy futures will look like. Arno mentioned earlier, the oil and gas sector has had a rich history of scenario planning. But what we are trying to do is to make them realize the scenario planning is not a one-shot exercise of what 2025 will look like or what 2030 will look like. Most of the scenario planning that has been done in the past is really trying to have a general idea of the probable scenarios and then working backwards. What we articulate in our paper is the need for understanding that there is multiple types of futures. There's a probable future. There is a possible future. There's a preferable future. And there could be all kinds of other wild cards that could happen. And how do we respond to it? And so instead of looking at this as a one-shot exercise, we urge companies to start looking at this as a series of sequential set of options. But we also do something that is important because today what we have are digital capabilities to run a whole set of analysis and models 
that will continually evaluate what is our preferable future against the alternative futures that are possible and plausible. So our second step is really very important because this will appeal to any analyst in the company to start looking at data and identifying how good are we going to be under these different scenarios. So we connect scenario planning back to data and analytics, which is an important discipline that we think the energy sector needs to have. Once we lay out these two, we come to how do we restructure the core operations? And there we make the point that this is a wonderful opportunity to reevaluate what is going to be done in a capital intensive setting like the oil and gas that could be done as OPEX by pooling resources with companies. Some of them could be competitors as the industry has done before in exploration or in distribution, but there's more opportunities. So how do we reimagine and restructure these operations with the CapEx OPEX shift and identify specifically three areas? We said, think about your energy portfolio and Arno is gonna be in a much better position to talk about it. The second one is restructure your technology portfolio from what you do as CapEx to OPEX. And third, and maybe equally important, is your human capital portfolio. How do we tap into the talent that is existing outside of the organization? How do we create centers of excellence in areas that we may not have the scale to do it ourselves, but pooling with others, we can get the digital talent required to do the simulation, the analytics, and high-performance computing that may be required. This restructuring is very important to understand whether your balance sheet is actually good enough to withstand the kind of uncertainty that we're going to face in this industry. And as you said earlier, 2025 or 2030. And last but not least, is we've got to reimagine and realign our external relationships and ecosystems. No company is an island, and energy company is no exception. What we now have is get to the point of who are the key partners that are going to help you restart where we are today in the crisis and then really get us to where we want to go. Who are the business partners we need? Who are the technology partners that we need? And really decide where you play in these new ecosystems. So just to summarize, understand where you are at the inflection point. Know that the energy futures is not one future, but a series of futures that we need to continuously model with data, restructure the operations, energy, technology, and human capital, and finally realign external relationships and ecosystems. We believe that these four steps are sequential instead of just going back to, as you said earlier, you know, lay off some people or stop some wells. Those are piecemeal operation. This is a time to really create this new playbook for innovation and transformation. Yeah, it's actually really funny. So before we turn the microphones on, I was talking to Justin and Justin has a day job besides being a professional podcaster. He was talking about how they train their clients 
And I was telling how wonderful it is. At that point, you're not a vendor anymore. You're a partner. And this is what you're talking about with number four is realign external relationships. You know, that old service company takes a hit on their margins to keep the operator running. That model doesn't work anymore either. And so companies are going to have to work together. We do it already with HSE in the oil and gas industry. And I think more of this will be better for everybody when you can spread that risk around, when you can learn from each other, when you truly have partners instead of vendors. And I know I jumped way ahead. I just thought it was funny. Justin and I were talking about that just a little while ago. Yeah, no, you're right. Because when you look at these inflection points, I'm reminded of what my research identified is that companies tend to overinvest in what has worked for them in the past and underinvest in what they need to do in the future. And our entire logic is to get them to realize that this is about resource reallocation. And you got to allocate resources in new areas. And that means even working with external partners rather than think of all of these resources need to be done inside, which means you're tapping into the collective expertise beyond what is inside your organization. And it's not just an academic concept that we laid out. We talk about network orchestrators. But I think what's very important to realize is that that future is already here today. So we already do have these partners that can really help drive that joint ecosystem, that connected value chain together. And I think the true winners in this change will be the ones that understand that concept, that are willing to work with partners in this new ecosystem, and more importantly, also share in the value that is actually going to be created because uh, because of that. But more importantly, I think those partners are already here, and it's not just some future concept that we're laying out. Yeah, I mean, for the last 10 years or so, I know several operators that when they draw up contracts with the service companies, they agree upon margins. So instead of the service company having to inflate their price and then the operator talks them down on price, they come together and say, okay, this is a fair margin for everybody. I love that type of business. And, and I think that's we need more of that in our industry. Yeah, I think what's going to happen, I think the onset of these new technologies has truly democratized the access and the availability of not just these partners. We don't see the future where we spent many, many months going through a very painful supply chain process to onboard companies. I think we're seeing the availability of these microservices now on a marketplace where you can just click, run a particular service, whether it's an analytics model to to optimize how your wells are doing or to do a full waveform inversion without having to share large amounts of subservice data. It's a click away with the security that the cloud provides, but more importantly, as a pay-as-you-go model. And it's that part, I think, how the value is going to be distributed, as you rightfully so said, Mark. Yeah, and you know, there's, and I cannot remember the name of the organization, but there's actually an organization of the major the super majors and the major independents working towards sharing seismic data. If you would have told me that five years ago, I would have said, you're crazy. That was everybody's secret sauce. But, you know, eventually that's just going to be better for everybody. Justin, man, what a great episode, but we're just barely scratched the service, didn't we? We did. And you know what? For all the listeners out there looking forward to more, we've actually got part two on the next episode. Yeah. So uh, everybody, thanks for listening. Hope you found it valuable and watch out for part two. It should be right around the corner. Hey everybody, Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. 
but we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.